Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. Along with our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, we have the ethos that movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity, because movement is part of what makes your life complete. Moving to Live interviews professionals in the movement field who have a variety of experiences, education, and professional titles. At the end of the day, we all want to move more, and we want our patients, athletes, or clients to move more or move better more efficiently, or move with less pain. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well-known in and outside of the movement and exercise professions. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. Each Moving to Live interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single listen, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. Before we get to the interview, a quick request. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share the podcast with your friends or anyone who understands that movement is a lifestyle. We appreciate it, and our guests appreciate it too. As you heard in the intro, we are moving to live. We really promote the ethos that movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. And if you've listened to our past episodes, you know that we really like to go across the spectrum and break down knowledge silos in not a negative way. I think today's uh, guest is way, way outside our knowledge area and knowledge silo. And like a number of guests that we get for Moving to Live in FitLab Pittsburgh, we come across them on social media and then I start to stalk them. Although in this case, it wasn't much of a stalk. It was one email and an absolutely. I first became aware of Connor Moriarty and Reset Outdoors over in Eastern Pennsylvania from posts that they were making on Instagram with outdoor pictures. And as you know, from FitLab Pittsburgh and Moving to Live and our outdoor pictures, we're the same way looked at what he was doing. And I realized, especially in the middle of COVID, especially when you look at athletes with sexual harassment and racism and things like that, having somebody who was actually educated and familiar with what these things are and how to identify them so that people don't really drop down the rabbit hole or make comments that they don't mean to make and then get uh, censored for reasons that aren't necessary. I thought it'd be good to have somebody who knows way more than we know and maybe educate our listeners. So Connor, we've been chatting for probably 35 minutes before we started recording. Thanks again for agreeing to be on Moving to Live. Ben, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for um not having to work so hard to send me an email and, and, and hook me into this. This is great. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. My favorite question I always ask for moving to live is your elevator spiel. It's COVID now, so it's not going to happen. But after it's over, you get stuck in an elevator. You're wearing your Reset Outdoors shirt. And somebody says, well, you know, Connor, what do you do? What is Reset Outdoors? Yeah, thanks for reminding me what it's like to be in an elevator because I honestly can't remember the last time that, that I, I was in one. Um, so in short... The mission of Reset Outdoors is to nurture sustainable well-being in our lives as clinicians and the lives of the clients we serve, the community that we live in, and the natural world. And we do that uh, through sort of two distinct but very connected avenues. The first is through a clinical mental health practice uh, where we offer traditional counseling, right? You come in, you sit in a chair. I mean, these days, of course, it's all telehealth. Um, but you know, in the before times, you would come to the office, sit down in one of our clinical rooms and have a conversation with a therapist. Um, what we love to do, though, and as much as our clients are open to and willing to, to participate in this, is we like to take the sessions outside. Um, and 
you know, if that's just a stroll through the neighborhood, great. But even better is if we can find uh, a green space, publicly accessible green space that's near to their home or their office. Um, and we get out for about 90 minutes. And the beauty of those sessions is there's not this uh, sort of expectation or requirement to talk, uh, particularly for survivors of trauma, particularly for just people that don't like to talk through their problems. It's great because rather than sitting there twiddling your thumbs for 45 or 50 minutes wondering what the heck am I doing here? Um, you're going to get two additional benefits, which is gentle exercise, which we know is, you know, surprise here, newsflash, uh, physical movement is very good for our mental health, right? Our mental and emotional health are directly linked to being able to move our bodies around and get some blood flow and, and muscle movement and respiration. So you get some gentle exercise. And the second thing that you get is time spent outside, which there is a growing mountain of research that, ju that proves just how powerfully impactful simply getting outside to natural light and even better around trees uh, and moving water. It's, it's good medicine for us. Um, documented to have all kinds of physiological, psychological, social uh, benefits. And we had um, the good fortune a couple of weeks ago to interview Dr. Susan uh, Bartlett Hackenmiller of Forest Bathing. I am a fan of Dr. Susie's from afar. We have not met. We share some mutual connections and, and friends, um, but I, I'm a big fan of her work and just uh, everything I've heard and read that she has produced is um, she's doing great work. Uh, so, of course, I listened to her episode before hopping on here today, and uh, this is and I know, thrilled that you got to speak to her. I know one of the things with, with Moving to Live, we like to find out how do people get to where they are. So clearly, if anybody goes to Reset Outdoors and looks at the various things that you've done, you can tell you're an outdoor person. But I'm always yeah. curious, was that something you came to for your mental health or was that one of those things growing up, mom and dad were outdoors people and it's kind of like, okay, I have to do it. Although have to do it is in air quotes because you probably enjoyed spending time with the parents. Yeah. The answer to that is both. And, um, so I grew up, yes, I think, uh, the first time I was camping, my dad took me when I was maybe two and a half or three, um, which, you know, I met people that have been out as early as three months and that's, I think that's amazing, but I was lucky to have, uh, many, meaningful experiences with the natural world from a very young age. Um, the town that I grew up in, we had 27 trees in our backyard and, and I knew every single one of them. I climbed every single one of them. I built forts in every single one of them. Um, so yes, I, I am very lucky to have had that from a very early age in my life and have grown uh, just, it's just, it was an inextricable part of my, my development as a person, but like many people, as I got into the professional world and started working and, and, and life kind of just took over, there was a stretch. And I am, it still sort of embarrasses me to admit this, although um, more for personal reasons, I, I lost sight of it. Uh, and that was, I think, directly linked to my, my struggles with burnout um, that eventually led to, to starting Reset Outdoors. And I'm curious, uh, this is a little bit outside the, the, the topic, but I, one of the things, because of your enjoyment for the outdoors and the way you've integrated into the clinical practice, um, for lack of a better term, one of the things I've always told people is we can't avoid stress. We're always going to have stress. It's how we're going to manage the stress. How much, in your professional opinion, is the 
inability or the difficulty, not inability of dealing with stress related to so much of the world is not related to outdoors. I, I mentioned in a previous podcast, I forget which one, um, a couple summers ago, I mean, I've lived in cities before. I, I live in a rural area now, but a couple summers ago, I went to a conference in Washington, D.C. And as I did most mornings, I went for a run or a walk or whatever you want to call it, a fartlek workout. And the one thing I noticed is just the incessant noise, whether it was air conditioners, whether it was cars, whether it was people with their headphones on. That obviously is some sort of a stress. How does that affect mental health versus, I mean, obviously we're making grand, grand comments here, but living in that sort of an environment versus somebody who has the opportunity, if they live um, even in, in a, a city environment where their backyard is an oasis because there's outdoors where it's quiet, where they don't hear that constant noise. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there's all kinds of incredible data and really amazing profound and unsettling research into the impact that noise pollution has on our emotional state and, and, and our physical bodies. Um, one study I remember reading a few years ago uh, looked into people who lived in close proximity to airports in Germany and uh, the rates of heart disease uh, in those populations was astronomically higher than folks who didn't live in that, in that area. So we know that that sort of that persistent inundation of noise isn't good for us. But I think on a lesser level, um, we are sort of used to being bombarded with stimuli constantly. Um, and eventually, and I feel this myself, I mean, this has really been a something I've had to tackle head on uh, through sort of doing most of our work through Zoom these days. Um, the struggle is real to want to see the latest update and check the email and read the news feed and you know, all this stuff that just, it, it gets into you. And this is the thing that I think similarly to being constantly hit with just sound is we don't remember what it feels like to be quiet and calm. Um, and I don't necessarily mean that in a, being in an environment without sound. Um, or being in an environment without stimulus. Uh, there is a distinct difference from the feedback and the stimuli you get from your phone and your computer than from a grove of trees or the sky. Um, I'd almost add to that. I remember my parents didn't uh, let me have a television. I mean, I could watch it at friends and my grandparents had a television. They didn't let me have a television until I bought my television at 14 years. And one of the comments that they, they said is like, look, you know, television is this passive activity where you just sit there and soak it in, read a book. It's much more active in your mind. And it sounds like, you know, same thing with the, with the phone, whether it's a YouTube video, you're, you're surfing blogs or something. It's kind of a passive. You could just kind of consume it. And it's like, oh, my God, where'd the time go? It's 45 minutes as opposed to a book. You almost have to be more interactive and think about it. Although there are different levels, as I've told my students, there's the pleasure reading. And if you ask me what I read last night, I don't know, versus the journal article. And I can probably tell you, yes, this is what it's about. That's I, yeah, I, I think ultimately what it comes down to, and this is uh, another thing that we believe very strongly is that the, what works for you, what works for me, isn't necessarily going to work for other people in our lives in the same way. And so, um, it comes down to kind of an intent, like what do you want to get out of the experience, which frankly, 
who takes the time to think about that before you engage in an activity, right? I mean, we do this for a living. We do this all the time. And I still catch myself fairly regularly needing to make sure that I think for just a nanosecond about what I'm hoping to will come from this or what I want to put into this. But the other part of it is just general awareness um, and specifically awareness of the environment around us and then what's happening in our bodies. Um, the, these are things that we just, we take for granted, we lose sight of um, when we're focused on, I'm not saying the technology is really totally the the boogeyman in the room here, but it surely isn't helping. And the data that we're seeing on rates of anxiety and depression going up and even suicidality uh, bear that out. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because you see, you know, all these things about trauma, about stress, about suicide, about mental health, but very rarely is it in a, from a professional in a applicable or consumable way for somebody who could looks at it, who isn't actually undergoing therapy. I'm curious, I'm 53, I think you're a little bit younger, but is it the fact that this is a growing problem or was it probably or possibly as big when you were growing up and I were growing up, it just wasn't talked about or recognized? I, I want to say yes to both. Um, more, something I can speak to with a little more confidence that's I think related is that the like the the reason that we started reset outdoors was because of the burnout rates in the helping professions um, that was I mean the vehicle for me finding that data was struggling with my own burnout and for people um, who don't know what's what's a simple definition of burnout uh, burnout is just this sort of slow insidious sneaky process of where you're not quite handling stress well. It's typically associated with your professional roles in the workplace, but you start feeling like a lack of motivation. You start feeling a little irritated. You start feeling like you can't focus. You start feeling like your work doesn't matter. And over the course of years, and for me particularly, all those things were happening for probably three years before it became to the point where I started to decide to take active measures to address it. But I mean, more than that, I'd come home feeling out of sorts. The day did not feel like it was productive or even uh, good. And that led to, you know, one beer becoming two. And I'm not, I'm not much of a drinker. Um, and the beers tasted good. So I was like, ah, it's no big deal. I'm just drinking a beer, you know, uh, but that led to weight gain. Um, and the weight gain led to uh, kind of just a lack of wanting to, partake in physical activities I had loved for a long time. And that led to the things that used to bring me joy and satisfaction, not bringing me so much joy and satisfaction. And it just is this cycle where ultimately you don't know what you're doing with your life. You need to get the hell out of work and find something else to do. And for people that do work that is directly linked to other people, and especially other people that are suffering, it means that really good, competent, open-hearted, smart professionals leave fields that desperately need them doing important work for their communities. Um, it's a huge problem and one that is not being adequately addressed by uh, workplaces or frankly, the healthcare system. Um, and this is why we focus on the opposite end of the healthcare spectrum. Now, we're direct providers in one end of our business. The other end is trying to work with individuals to inspire them to take active steps that are sort of referred to as self-care, right? The things that we can do on our own without the help of a professional that 
boosts our health and well-being very tangibly and measurably. I'm curious, how much was recognizing burnout in yourself professionally and figuring out strategies to reduce it? Or I would imagine there are certain times in various professions that you're going to have a temporary period of burnout and you may recognize that, but how much was that addressed in your education so that you were able to recognize it? Or was it something you kind of had to pick up in the field? It's like, oh, this is not normal. And then, oh, this is not normal. Something's going on. And as you did more research, it's like, oh, okay, this is what burnout is. Yeah. Uh, again, both and. So it was very directly addressed in my graduate program, um, but superficially, right? So this is the, this is sort of the, the, two contradictory things that are happening at once. You're sitting in grad school, which I went to a, a small school that was incre- has a phenomenal reputation for turning out really good clinicians um, that are uh, well-versed in an eclectic, with a, an eclectic toolkit. We can bring all kinds of interventions to our work. Um, and that comes with a ton of pressure. We had a lot of work to do. So we'd sit in class and, you know, we'd get the the sort of, you got to pay attention to yourself. You got to take care of yourself. You got to make sure you're exercising, eating good food, getting plenty of sleep. Oh, and also your papers are due tomorrow, right? So that translates too directly to the professional world when we stepped out. So we knew, of course, like you take it for granted. Like, of course I need to take care of myself. Of course I need to, I'll do it tomorrow, right? Or there's just not time. I have this caseload that keeps growing of people that I sincerely care about and want to help. I will handle myself after I get this, you know, stable. How much of it is uh, for, for some people, because what you're describing is taking care of other people, not to the same extent, but in the, I'm thinking of the strength coaching field and the, and the athletic coaching field, the, the number of hours that people put in and do that. And, you know, how many, obviously I'm stereotyping, but how many coaches do you see in the sidelines and major competitions who are significantly overweight? How much of that is, the impression of, you know, I have to take care of my patients. I have to take care of my clients because they're relying on me and, I, and I'm important versus you just kind of lose it and say, okay, I'll take care of myself later. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I like trying to think if I can recall anything that I've read about uh, the balance between people needing to feel important and powerful versus I guess selfless and like they're giving of themselves. I think there's probably a core or a relation there. Um, and just thinking back to my own experience, the two aren't too far apart. Cause I sincerely, it feels good to help people. Um, but I think I could see that slipping too far into the realm of like, I hold the power here. Um, and then to be frank, I've seen that in colleagues. Um, and it's not a good thing for a therapist to, to slip into, um, but the other part of it, I think, is that, and this is sort of where I was leading, is that uh, in the helping professionals, and I, I think this probably has, there's probably similar data um, in the movement professions, right? Uh, but you, much is expected of us. We're working directly with people who are often suffering, and that requires a level of awareness and, uh, and, and emotional uh, strength that takes time to build and takes time to maintain. But there's far more need than there are people to serve that need. Um, and that means that you have to put in long hours, you have to put in a lot of time. And then 
you know, when you're working 12, 10, 12 hours a day, how are you going to go for a run and then get dinner on the table for the kids and, you know, spend a little time with your family and then get a solid eight hours of sleep. It just numbers don't add up. Um, so this is again, just to hit this point because we, we really do hammer this quite frequently. It really is going to take a community effort. It's going to take employers making sure that they are acknowledging and supporting their people in taking time to recharge properly. And that doesn't mean that you provide yoga. That's one step. That's one important service that is going to appeal to some, but not everyone. It doesn't mean that you just provide an EAP program and expect everybody to go talk to a therapist because the data shows that's only about 18% of people. Um, So, you know, you got to have, uh, you got to give people some autonomy and some freedom and some time to figure out what works for them and then support them as they practice those skills and start to build confidence in the impact that has in their lives. I'm reminded of a, I don't think it was made as a trite comment, but one of my uh, doctoral committee members who I used to run with, one of the, one of the comments he made to me once just in passing was, you know, the sooner you recognize that you're never going to get everything checked off your to-do list, the happier you're going to be. And I was still at the age, it's like, yeah, that's not true. And I would honestly say I was probably 46 or 47 before I started to take that to heart and realize it and realize that the the various to-do lists or whatever the app is that you use is never completely checked off. Never. And this is, uh, uh, I wish I could remember this. This is um, my, my good friend and colleague, Jason, um, sent me a, a link that said something along the lines. Um, Imagine if instead of embracing the hustle, we embraced seven solid hours of sleep, a good breakfast, lunch, and dinner, plenty of time with our families. Um, oh, and getting our stuff done at work well. Um, balance is truly the key in this. And we know that people that, uh, that have time to spend with their families, have time to exercise and eat good food, have access to healthcare, are significantly more productive on the job. Um, it's... Uh, it seems a little aspirational, but it's it's really borne out by good numbers and good data. Um, the more I don't, you invest, I don't know in if that. They, I don't know if they still do it, but I remember reading uh, the gentleman who founded Cliff Bar's book, and I think one of the things that they did, I don't know if they still do, is they paid their workers for eight hours a day, and they allowed them to move, whether it was a, a walk or a rock climbing wall, one of the eight hours. Yep. Um, that's, that's built into our program too at Reset Outdoors is, uh, you get lunch provided for you and you get time to get out and, and, and move. Um, that's something that is absolutely directly linked to people's uh, satisfaction on the job and their performance overall. And it sounds like that's a little different than somebody saying, well, we have a mental health program. We offer yoga classes once a week and a therapist comes in twice a month where you can can meet with. It's kind of like, okay, we checked the box. We did it. And I don't remember if it was before we started recording or at the beginning, you said there is no right answer for everybody. Everybody is an individual. And it sounds like that what you're doing with Reset Outdoors is Reset Outdoors is a toolbox where either the individual or the individual in conjunction with the professional is able to work and say, okay, these are the tools that work for me, recognizing that what's working now, six months from now may not work. It may be entirely different. That's absolutely right. And I would just add that Reset Outdoors is is the toolbox full 
of all kinds of interesting and effective tools. And more than that, it's incredible people holding the toolbox who know how to use each one and know how to have conversations and build relationships to figure out that maybe these are the ones that will work and then work with you to figure it out. And if they don't work, okay, we got more. And if they're not in the box, we're going to help you find something that does work. That's, that's the trick of it. That's the art of it. Um, and it is a lot more labor intensive than I think uh, most people recognize, but it is so satisfying <laughs> to, to see people connect with the things that really um, help them feel resilient and healthy and, and powerful. I know the, the people in my field that I've found uh, most beneficial and that I've been mo- had the most respect for are the ones who are willing to share with you whatever they do. You know, there's, there are these groups of people. It's like, well, I'm not going to give you my training program because then you'll take over my job. And I could see in the mental health fields, uh, people saying, well, I'm not going to tell you what the, I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but air quotes, tricks of the, my tricks of the trade are where I get such good results with my clients because then you'll steal my clients. So I'm kind of curious, are there other uh, businesses or other counseling, if I'm using the right term, uh, organizations who are doing this outdoor type of activity in conjunction or as one tool in the toolbox, or are you one of the first? Uh, I mean, yes, there are, there are more and increasingly more who are doing this and it thrills us because it is overdue and it is so necessary. Um, you know, we're, we are definitely in the camp of thinking that the more the merrier in this, in this, uh, particular movement, um, it is really something that we hope catches. And, you know, again, we're seeing more references to just how beneficial the outdoors are uh, in like popular media and all kinds of uh, outlets. It's being something that's talked about and recognized. And I can say that the way we're seeing it is we get into rooms and talk to CEOs and VPs all the time and, and they know it. They know the data. It's not something we have to convince them on anymore. And that's a great sign. Um yeah, I, these, the thing is, these tools are, are, we didn't build these tools. We didn't create them. This is simply doing things that we think uh, are what people have been doing for a long time. And it wasn't until fairly recently that we lost our connection with these things. Um, and what the pandemic has really pointed out is, you know, people are getting out and being uh, physically active and that's good. And people are increasingly enjoying the outdoors, which is wonderful. Um, but the thing that's missing is authentic human connection. I mean, that's something that this is, Ben, I love looking at you across the screen here and it's great to be talking to you, but I would much rather be sitting across a table or even better walking through the woods with you in person. That would be so much better. Um, and so that's why, that's why we try to have at least authentic human connection, a little bit of physical movement and gentle exercise and the great outdoors as a, as a part of every program we offer. And I know in the movement field, you can look and you can see athletes that talk about mental health problems that they've had or incidents that they've had that cause trauma. And one of the things that I found difficult as a professional who's just curious is, you know, what are all these things? And, you know, you can, you can look up the clinical definitions in in a psych book, or you can find uh, journal articles that are in in your field. But sometimes, especially for people who maybe aren't in the profession who are listening, it's much more helpful to have somebody who's a professional who gets that it's not just, well, you come in 
three times a week, or you come in once a month and talk to somebody for 45 minutes. So I, I guess one of the first questions, the initial question to start out with is somebody might want to know, it's like, why does somebody need to go to a therapist or how does somebody know that they need to go to a therapist? Yeah, that's a awesome question. And you listeners, including you, Ben, are probably going to roll your eyes and say it's, it's case by case, right? Like this is uh, like, it depends on the person, but here are the general things that we describe. The first is if something in your life or things in your life are consistently getting in the way of you living the life you want to live. The jargon we use is that that becomes something that is clinically significant. If it is keeping you from living the life you want to live, it's important to look at a little more deeply. And the way we'll, the way we'll make sure, as you said, it's on a case-by-case basis. I know when I interview a physical therapist, we say, this talk is for educational purposes only. It is not <laughs> intended right. to be taken. That's right. That's right. No, exactly. Exactly. So what, this is a handy question that people can start asking themselves to see if maybe some more attention is needed or possibly the help of a professional. Um, but if there are these patterns that you're noticing that don't feel like they should be a part of you. And you kind of described that with you with the, when you going home and drinking one or two beers, gaining a little bit of weight. And I would think if from my field, it turns into a vicious circle. You don't move as much. You, you hit the nail on the head. Now take that and open it up and then fit your own story pieces into there and see if that same cycle appears, right? Think of it as being a rut that you've been stuck in or more than that, like a, a series of really intense emotional experiences that derail your whole day um, all the way on up to not being able to get out of bed or living paralyzed by fear. Um, Those are just a couple small examples that I think can give people an emotional sort of spectrum to see where they lie on. Now, the next step beyond that is is if they should see a therapist. Um, And the way I answer that is, is if you have tried things, healthy things, right? and they're not working, sometimes it's a good idea to get somebody else who's not attached to your life to kind of size up the situation. If you're like, to think of it this way, if I have a cut on my finger, I do a lot of crazy stuff in the outdoors. I also like to make things. I'm always cutting myself. If I get a cut in my finger, that in a couple weeks is still incredibly sore, not healing, and maybe even worse, like smelling kind of funny or looking gross, probably time to go to call in a pro. Um, your immune system might be compromised. You might need a little help from some, you know, topical antibiotics and, and the advice of a physician to help that heal properly before it gets worse. It's a similar process for anything going on in, in, in your mental and emotional space. If it's just not healing right, or if it's getting worse, despite trying things that you know, or you think will work, not a bad idea to get a get a third party in to to scope things out and, and maybe give you some advice. And how much is it a? Uh, and I may not be using the correct terminology because as I make no bones, this is outside my area of expertise. But how much is it of a buildup of, for lack of a better term, stressors? You know, I'm thinking. You know, if you're a athlete, you know, you okay, you you're training hard for an event. And suddenly, you know, your, your son or daughter is going through puberty, which will be a stressful time and your wife gets sick and your boss wants you to take on additional responsibilities. How much of it is all these things building up to do it as far as it's not one thing, but it's kind of like 
whatever it is, there's something It's like, okay, this combined with all those other things. Yeah. Death pushes me, pushes cuts. me, pushes me over the edge. Not, in, not, not meaning for that to be a negative. I understand. No, you're, you're describing it very well. I, 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 th- I think that this is uh, to continue with the medical analogy here. Um, your body has a very well-developed immune system, right? Like it can fight most things out of it. Um, your emotions, your, your, your thoughts similarly have this incredible ability to keep themselves healthy. Um, and you need some very basic, very consistent things to have your emotional immune system function as well as your physical immune system. And they're very similar to what impacts your physical immune system. It's plenty of sleep. It's good, healthy food. It's lots of water and hydration and gentle exercise and feelings of connectedness and belonging. Um, If you have those things more or less, right? Of course, they all balance out and they shift depending on what's going on in your life and your, in your circumstances. But if you have most of those things, you're going to be able to handle those stressors. But if those things start to slip and what often happens as stressors increase, we stop focusing on maintaining those very basic uh, necessary ingredients. And then that's when things tumble over into, into that vicious cycle you're talking about earlier. I know you, you mentioned some signs or some things that may indicate you need to seek professional help. Would it be along the same lines when somebody says, well, how long do I have to do this? Is this basically, it's an individual thing. One person that may be talking to, talking to you and you're going, look, this is completely normal. All these things are going on. This will get better versus somebody else who maybe it takes longer, or maybe it's a constant struggle that uh, God forbid is, never over it's basically yeah you're going to have to talk to somebody or numerous people for infinity yeah it, it should not be for infinity but it is absolutely case by case um it and you know maybe i take that back there are some people that genuinely build really effective long-term relationships with therapists um but the hope is again getting back to this idea of something physical and medical going on if you break your leg it's going to take time and care set the bone and and go through some very uncomfortable stretches of time while that bone knits back together and heals. And then you got to rebuild the muscles that have atrophied after that. Um, and depending on the level and degree of the injury and depending on the person's health and well-being, that time of healing could be very different. It could, you know, I, I have a young toddler. If he, if he felt, I don't want this to happen. If he broke his arm today, he'd probably be okay in two months. If I broke my arm today, it would probably take me four months, right? Just again, as an analogy. Um, so contrary to popular belief, this is a process and an ongoing process. And the goal of any good clinician is to get someone back to the point where their leg is able to bear a little bit of weight and they know the exercises they have to do to rebuild that muscle and encourage good long-term sustainable healing and then send you on your way. And if you got to come back and get a checkup every now and again, cool, we're here. And that's but the that's, idea is that brings up a great point. I mean, I know one of the things uh, in the medical world, in the uh, physical therapy and, and personal training, one of the things is, you know, people who maybe don't have injuries or people who don't see a personal trainer. I mean, even I have somebody that I see periodically to say, am I doing this right? Can you give me cues? Is that something that for 
some people after they have not solved the problem but moved to a better place is that something that it's a, it's a good idea periodically hey every year or so i want to check in or is it more along the lines of if this is a case-by-case basis unfortunately ben it is absolutely a case-by-case basis and for some people semi-regular check-ins are wonderful and for others they never look back and that's that's okay too um and i think this brings us back to the point that we sort of touched on in the opening, which is it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, Do not think that just because somebody tells you that this is what you need to do, that that's actually what you need to do. You have to do the work to build the awareness uh, of your own needs. Um, And sometimes having somebody who you trust walk with you through that process can be an incredibly helpful thing. Um, But for some folks, like, and this is another aspect of this, for some folks, all you have to do is be reminded of the things that you need and start focusing on them a little bit. And your, your body and your psychological systems start to come back to a place of balance and that vicious cycle starts to fade away. Um, and it is typically not overnight. It usually takes some time. Um, but that time frame is case by case. <laughs> I'm reminded I had the opportunity to inter- interview a health coach out of Australia and he had a couple of things that really stuck with me, which I think is relatively unusual, at least from what I've seen on social media. You know, the bad thing about social media is there's all kinds of information, good and bad. But he said he didn't like to see anybody for more than six to eight months at a time. They might need checkups. And the other thing that he really hit on, he said, look, I'm there to help you. I'm not there to tell you what to do. I'm there to guide you and offer offer you advice. Is that the same thing in mental health? If somebody comes and, and they find that the therapist, am I using the correct term when I say therapist? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, if the therapist says you need to do this, this, and this, is that one of those things like, okay, maybe I should run or find somebody else or are there instances where that's appropriate? It, there are instances where that is appropriate, but it, depend, it is absolutely dependent on there being a strong trusting consistently strong and trusting relationship. So if they say that the first, the first visit run away. <laughs> oh, Ben, not necessarily. I would, I would, I'd be like, hang on. You don't know me well enough to be telling me what I need. So I'm out of here. Uh, I'm going to look for somebody else. That's, that's me. But I have, I know plenty of people that have gone to sessions, have sat down with clinicians. The clinician has said, I want you to do this, this, and this, and come back next week and tell me how it goes. And they go and they do that, this, and the other thing, and they feel great. And so they go back. And that is the beginning of a really beneficial, effective counseling relationship. So I think my, my advice that I would offer is to trust your intuition, right? If you sit down with someone and this takes time. The first meeting, the first session is not always the best time to make one strong total judgment on how the relationship's going to build. But if you get a little like, I'm not sure about this person, and that feeling's still there after three or four sessions, walk away, find somebody else. And it's, it's a little bit like dating uh, and equally as cumbersome and like a pain in the butt sometimes. It takes time to find the relationship that is going to allow you to establish that trust and then re- that's where the healing comes. And I think that brings us to our next uh, area that I'd like to cover. We're talking to Connor Moriarty. He is the owner of Reset Outdoors. One of the things that you commonly hear, and again, I, unfortunately, it appears that many people get most of their information off social media. 
you know, you can get that quick bullet point as we talked a little bit before, you know, you can hop on your phone and say, oh, look at this influencer on whatever it is. And they're saying, you need to do this, you need to do that, or these are things. And there are always terms that are thrown around that, you know, people who maybe aren't in the mental health field, they're not exactly sure what it is. And maybe they don't know who to ask or they get asked, they ask somebody and they get the wrong information. So I think one of the terms that's been thrown around a lot is micro trigger. What's a micro trigger? I don't know. I honestly have not heard of that before uh, because maybe because I'm not on social media all that much. I, I really, I'm, I'm, uh, I am not, I'm a reluctant user of social media platforms. Um, I, I, I tell people for my social media, what you'll see is professional articles reposted stuff from my podcast and pictures of my dogs. <laughs> yeah. Three wonderful things. Oh, coffee, and, coffee and pizza too. Five wonderful things. Five things that I already like very much. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can sort of assume what a micro trigger is, and I guess I can get the idea that it's something that sort of disrupts your thought flow and makes you feel probably not a very good way on a very tiny level. I mean, that's and, and that's hours pretty of deduction much, at work there. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm asking that because you commonly read about people uh, in some some. Uh, college classrooms or high school classrooms where, you know, they can't read certain books or they have to say, you know, we can't, uh, you know, if we're going to read this book, you need to be aware that there are instances of just, for example, rape. And if you have a, if you have been raped in the past or you feel uncomfortable, you don't have to read this book. Right. I, um, so, you know, my specialist trauma, I, mm-hmm. this is something that I, I, I really believe very strongly and it is never a bad thing to give people a heads up that what they might be getting into could be disturbing. Um, I think that's a kindness for people in the room who maybe aren't disclosing a trauma history, who you look at and maybe don't know that something absolutely terrible has happened in their lives and that they are. And, and before from. we go farther, if you could define what trauma is so people who are listening understand. Yeah. I mean, more or less the, the, the primary experience that leads to what we call a diagnosable trauma is anything that leads to a sense of helplessness, horror, and fear where you or someone you know or not know have their life or their bodily well-being in harm's way. Um, it's, it's really that broad. Um, and I don't know anyone that hasn't had some sort of experience um, directly or indirectly that could qualify them for some sort of uh, trauma diagnosis. The next level of that, though, is where the diagnosis really comes from. And that's and, and experiences actually, that come from it. If I, if I could ask with that, um, <laughs> because I've heard that before, that pretty much everybody could be said that there's it's all trauma, man. It's all trauma. So, yep. mm-hmm. Are there some people who you, you mentioned before, who maybe just because of the way they respond to stresses or react that they have a trauma, but they're able to move beyond that without seeking professional help? Yes, that happens all the time. I mean, the data that we have is is woefully incomplete because there are so many people that that don't show up looking for support, um, and that's a good thing. I mean, to, to really, the 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 thing that always makes me feel so good about humanity is just how strong and resilient we are by nature, right? Like we we are fragile, but incredibly resilient. Um, and that is a beautiful thing to see. So yeah, not everybody is going to need the support of a professional after experiencing a trauma. And Most then, people, whoops, I'm sorry. No, and then for no, some, go ahead. for somebody who 
does seek help from a professional. Mm -hmm. Is this something, and again, if my terminology is wrong, correct me, is this something they can recover or adapt from, or is this something that they will constantly struggle with for the remainder of their life? And finally, as a follow-up, is this one of those things? It depends. It's an individual basis. I'm sorry, Ben. <laughs> no, I I'm like sorry. that. Sorry. It's so un unsatisfying, but yes, it depends. Um, and the answer is yes, people heal. Yes, you, time, simply time on its own will, will make that pain feel less. Um, but in some instances, again, if we're looking back, if we think of trauma as an injury, which really it is, and, and there's a movement to change the terminology of post-traumatic stress disorder to post-traumatic stress injury. And I am in full support of that language shift because it is very much akin to breaking your femur or some other, other major bone in your body. Um, you might walk with a limp for the rest of your life. You might not be totally free of pain. Um, but with help and support and assuming that all the other factors that we talked about earlier, your health and well-being, your diet, your sleep, personal relationships that are supportive, if all those things are where they need to be, then you're going to move forward. You're going to be able to live a fulfilling, satisfying, wonderful life. Um, ideally, being able to look back and see that traumatic experience is something that gave you something that you have turned into good. That's called post-traumatic growth. It's not wishing that you have the experience, not wanting that trauma. It's not hoping that you experience one. It's taking what you've got and turning it into something that fuels you and helps you become a better, stronger, smarter person. One, um, one of the things that I do with this podcast is I get to pick people's brains and I'm, I'm hearing you say this, which is a clearer answer than I've ever gotten from being able to read on social media, go figure. <laughs> but I had the, I think I could say the good fortune of having a Labrador that it'll be two years coming up in April that I lost. Uh, and when she was four years old, she developed idiopathic epilepsy mm -hmm. with numerous seizures, et cetera, et cetera. Um, sleep quality sucked. Would yeah. that be something that would be classified as a, as a trauma? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and the reason being that this is, a, this is, I mean, pets are members of our family, right? Like they become a part of our, of our family. We love them very much. And seeing her go through that for you must have been absolutely terrible and horrifying and made you feel very helpless, Right. So yes, I would absolutely, if you came into my office and explained that, I would say, yep, you have met criterion A, let's move on to uh, B and C and see where we go. And if this is actually qualifies you for a diagnosis, at the very least um, it's a traumatic stressor. And what I know one of the things along those times it was in the middle of doing podcasting is talking to a sleep researcher and figuring out ways to improve my sleep. And one of the things like, I, I, I remember saying this is like, I know my sleep is going to suck until she dies because every time she turns over, I wake up and go, Oh my God, Emma's having a seizure. Yeah. And it was one of those things like I would accept that. And it's been almost two years. And even though I've got another dog, not replaced her, but if you said if she was still around and my sleep was still disrupted and I was probably 10 pounds heavier, I'd take it in a minute. So can yeah. trauma, even though it's, it has these negative connotations, could it be a kind of negative, positive thing? Uh, 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 always. Not always. Yeah. Not all. Yeah. Yes. Not always, but yes. Um, case by case basis. <laughs> well, yeah. And to use your example of Emma, um, I think the fact that you cared so much is why you paid such close attention. And when you think about some of the um, symptoms of trauma, such as hypervigilance, um, 
that that is born out of a need to keep ourselves safe and our loved ones safe. So you're really getting to the core of this, which is it's a natural response that runs a little bit of muck for a little bit too long, right? It, it extends past the time when it's useful in our lives. And to, are you sleeping better now? Probably about an hour and a half more a night. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's yes. better. No, it, 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 it was, it was, it was, it was significantly better. I mean, okay. You know, and I mean, one of the things I started using the aura ring and I started, uh, you know, tracking my sleep and tracking my, uh, my screen time and things like that. But I also knew, I remember thinking, it's like, I know it's never going to be really good as long as I have this dog that at any point in time, and it seemed like she always had seizures at, you know, 11 or 12 o'clock at night. Um, but switching gears a little bit, or although on the same topic, because, you know, for lack of a better term, for me, I look at that as a positive trauma because the positives of having her far outweighed the negative effect of the disrupted sleep. But I mean, obviously there are traumas and, you know, your specialty, which I would imagine there aren't positives. Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> and I'm curious when talking about trauma and it seems to be, I don't know if more people are being aware of it or more people are, feeling comfortable talking about it because there always is the tendency for people to want to overshare on social media. Um, who is equipped to help somebody for lack of a better term, deal with trauma or come to grips with trauma or work to move. So they don't have so much of a fight or flight response when they get a, a, a stimulus, you know, obviously somebody like you, but you see all of these, fitness area saying, well, I've had trauma yoga training and, you know, what is that? I know you've got a level of training in yoga that involves that. If you could just talk a little bit about your experience, your expertise, I think it would be interesting both to me and the listeners. Yeah. Excellent question. I think there are two questions in there. The first is who do you turn to or who can you rely on? And then how can you tell if someone is qualified or not qualified? And guess what? It depends. <laughs> so, oh man, that's what the title of the show should be. It depends. Um, but uh, no, th the first question um, is one that I uh, feel very strongly about. And that is before we knew, before we had an official name for, for traumatic experiences, before we even named the injury or the psychological impact formally, um, before there were professionals that handled this type of stuff, who did we turn to? Um, and the answer is the people that we know care about us. You know, I'm lucky that I live in my house with a family. I know that those people care about me. Not everybody has that. Friends, coworkers, barbers, in some cases, and I'm saying this with a big asterisk, bold, circled, bartenders, pub owners, right? These are places where you connect with other people. The point is, and this is the most insidious feature of trauma is trauma shatters the way we see ourselves in the world. Um, and the key to healing that is often connecting safely with other people again. So, and how, and how does somebody, all those people that you've mentioned are not mental health professionals. How does, if you're one of those people, and somebody is talking to you, how do you recognize is like, okay, this is maybe something where they might benefit from talking or becoming familiar with somebody who has more training than me, who can explain what's going on and why this is happening. There, there are two measures. The first is intuition. And the second is uh, 
signs that you see. So like, again, Pete, we have very strong, uh, our senses are constantly giving us really good data. And oftentimes when we are sensing things and aren't totally clear about what we're sensing, we get a little spidey sense, right? A little, a little sort of feeling that something I'm not picking, I'm picking up on something. I don't know what it is. I would say that if you're getting that sense and it's also combined with, this is too much for me to handle right now. It's never a bad thing to recommend that somebody find someone else to talk to and maybe even a professional. Um, how you do that though is pretty important. Uh, you got to be gentle. You got to be compassionate. Um, you know, and similarly, I don't think ordering someone to do it is will always be received that well. Um, but yeah, if you get a sense that something isn't right, something's off here and it's, and it's hitting me in a place that I don't like how it feels. Um, that's a good sign that maybe you could, you should just sort of recommend that they look for someone else to, to talk to. And I know we were chatting a little bit before we started recording and you mentioned uh, one of the things that sometimes is seen as the f- in the fitness field is for people who ha- are or have experienced trauma going to various types of fitness facilities can, I don't think recreate the trauma, but it can cause a response. Re- yeah. Retraumatization. Absolutely. So, I mean, one of the things I can tell you that for the most part in that sort of training that's not in the training on how to deal with people who have experienced trauma, how to find out. It's like, okay. So if you could talk a little bit about that, I mean, I know it's outside of your field, but it's in your field as far as I think anybody can learn how to recognize. So they don't maybe step in the doo-doo accidentally because they don't know what they're doing. Right. Um, so just to get a little context, my interest in, uh, in kind of diving into these worlds where, um, where we were looking at movement and, and physical practices as being a modality for healing from psychological trauma was born out of encountering a high number of people. Um, I mean, it felt, it felt high. It was pretty much in line with statistically what we know, but uh, I had a series of clients where treatments just weren't working. They had been in treatment for traumatic experiences for years, a long, long time. And there's a sort of consistent pattern where there's progress and then a plateau, and then a backslide. Year in and year out. Year in and year out. And that, I now know, is fairly common. There is treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, And that comes from, we think, this uh, deep traumatic memory that roots into our muscles, into our physical body. This is the re- we were talking before we were recording about the work of uh, Bessel, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Um, and his book, if people are interested in this topic, uh, the, the one that I think really sheds a really wonderful light on this idea is called The Body Keeps the Score. And when you think about how trauma impacts us and how we adapt um, out of necessity to keep ourselves safe, it makes perfect sense that your body would start to, first of all, quiet things that it doesn't want to feel while also focusing on things that are classic signals that there's a problem, right? This is the, the balance just getting, just stilting a little too far out of whack. So something as simple as feeling your heart rate increase can be directly linked to a traumatic memory. You're not aware of it necessarily consciously, but the second your body senses your heart rate going up, you go into, into panic mode. Similarly, and this is as a 
someone who has loved yoga for a long time and practiced yoga, uh, less so over the past couple of years, which I'm a little embarrassed to admit, but um, it's very common to, ha- to be deep in your practice and all of a sudden have some hands on you. Unexpected, surprised, and unexpected and a surprise are usually unwelcome for people that have trauma histories, right? So it makes sense. That would be something that you would never want to do again. Um, so Bessel van der Kolk and his team at the trauma center up outside of Boston developed trauma center, trauma sensitive yoga, which is no hands-on. The language is very invitational. You're not telling people what to do. You're inviting them to try a series of at least three physical movements or something else. And you respect their decision. You allow them to do what they want to do. And if they sit there and don't move, that's perfectly all right. It's entirely up to them. And that gives them the space and time to reconnect their awareness and a sense of empowerment and control over their physical body, which for a lot of people who have treatment-resistant trauma is not something they've felt for a long time. Um, And that rewires neurons. And, you know, with time and practice, you have healing. It's just, it's beautiful. We've been talking to Connor Moriarty of Reset Reset Outdoors. He is a licensed professional counselor. I think if there's a take-home message from the interview, it's, and I say this totally jokingly, it depends. It's a case-by-case basis. But (laughs) seriously, I think you've you've shed a lot of light that I think a lot of movement professionals can benefit from. And I want to appreciate, thank you for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. Ben, this has been a joy and a pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope hope we get to talk again. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live wherever you find podcasts or on our website, www.moving2live.com. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live and check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, F-I-T-L-A-B-P-G-H.com, which focuses on people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority because movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. Until next time, keep on moving.